There is a very small fish that is in the habit of living among the rocks and is known as the Echinaeus. It is believed that when this has attached itself to the keel of a ship, its progress is impeded, and that it is from this circumstance that it takes its name. For this reason also, it has a disgraceful repute as being employed in love filters, and for the purpose of retarding judgments and legal proceedings. Evil properties which are only compensated by a single merit that it possesses. It is good for staying fluxes of the womb in pregnant women, and preserves the fetus up to birth. It is never used, however, for food. Aristotle is of the opinion that this fish has feet, so strong is the resemblance by reason of the form and position of the fins. Mucianus speaks of a murex of larger size than the purple, with a head that is neither rough nor round, and the shell of which is single and falls in folds on either side. He tells us also that some of these creatures once attached themselves to a ship freighted with children of noble birth, who were being sent by Periander for the purpose of... What is up with the mountain? What is that such a strange cloud? What is going on? Speak the charm of me. There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. When wizards will lose This is the Arnamancy Podcast. The world is weirder than we know. Join your host, Reverend Eric, in his diverse array of amazing guests in an exploration of tarot, magic, the occult, and the history of Western esotericism. The Arnamancy Podcast exists thanks to the support of generous listeners like you. Please consider supporting this podcast for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash arnamancy. Welcome to the second part of our deep dive into Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa's hugely influential, gigantic book, Three Books of Occult Philosophy. In this episode, we will be searching for the answer to a pressing question. How did Agrippa manage to write such an enormous book before he even turned 25? Thanks to Eric Perdue's long work on his translation of the book, which was published in 2021 by Inner Traditions, we have a pretty good answer. Plagiarism. Agrippa used materials from over 200 sources to compile and assemble occult philosophy. In many cases, he simply lifted complete passages from some of these sources. However, in spite of the rampant plagiarism in the text, Agrippa was somehow able to assemble quotes and passages from all of these sources, some of them quite mundane, to put forth an argument for his own definition of an occult philosophy that has proven to be both remarkable and influential. Plagiarism might seem like a damning accusation against Agrippa's work, but we need to look at it in a historical context. Throughout much of literary history, plagiarism was often just a normal part of writing. 
Sources were rare and unavailable, and in many cases, ancient texts are only available today because they were so heavily plagiarized. It seems like it wasn't until the 17th century that English writers started to get really worked up about plagiarism, and even then, it was not a universally condemned practice, as we will see later. In this episode, we will be discussing a few of Agrippa's sources in an attempt to better understand the materials he was working with. In fact, some of his more important sources may have also been compiled through historic acts of plagiarism, which can make tracing some concepts back to their origins very tricky. Looking at the broader scope of occult philosophy's history, we should also remember that in the early 19th century, almost all of Agrippa's book was plagiarized by Francis Barrett to create his massive magical tome, The Magus, or Celestial Intelligencer which is a pretty badass name, you have to admit. The story of this book is also an excellent one, and I explored it in a previous podcast episode with R.A. Priddle. You can find a link to that episode in the show notes. So plagiarism aside, let us appreciate how astounding it was that Agrippa could gain access to so many sources at the beginning of the 16th century in order to assemble and write occult philosophy. We now know that Agrippa had developed a group of friends and associates who discussed occult matters and probably helped him research topics and assemble sources. I asked Eric Perdue about Agrippa's secret circle of friends and how they probably helped him assemble occult philosophy. He Well, Agrippa was, was a member of a loose fraternity of enthusiasts. You know, it's not really clear. I mean, I, I, there are some blog posts out there that... that um, have some theories on what the members were, but it, it was a, a fairly loose um, group. Although Agrippa seems to to have been one of the the younger people, but at the same time, there's some indications that he was the one who vetted the membership. And I think a lot of a lot of this happened when he was in Paris. Uh, some of them were definitely German, uh, but I, I don't think all of them were. It's a, it's a secret, right? <laughs> but anyway, they, they were enthusiasts, so I can only theorize. Um, but I, I think it's it's probably correct that they shared notes. You know, they probably shared each other's collections, you know, where they had it. And um, so he he compiled, you know, the, the original three books is you know, relatively close to the final version, except much shorter. And, um, you know, the orders changed around a bit. But I, I think that this just came from a him being a lifelong student of this. I mean, he started pretty young and B he had friends that were able to feed him information. You know, we, we don't really know if all these sources were books that he had. I mean, some of them I, I'm positive he didn't have. Uh, there are a few sources that, that are pretty piecemeal. So th those I can imagine being from notes. You know, what's amazing to me is his organization, though. I mean, how, you, know, to, you know, this book is compiled from roughly 200 sources. And, you know, and people often deride the book for being, you know, a, for him being a plagiarist and... You know, and just imagine compiling a book from quotes from 200 other books and at the same time doing this in a way to frame your own argument is amazing to me. We discussed a little bit about Agrippa's life in the last episode, but now we have to get into exactly where all of these magical friends of his came from. 
So Agrippa studied at the University of Cologne from 1499 to 1502. And in 1502, he received his Magister Artium, or Master of the Arts. He was only 16. I honestly do not know if this means that Agrippa was some sort of Renaissance Doogie Hauser, or if it was common for people to get their MAs at such a young age in that era. Uh, Shortly after that, in 1507 he began his studies in Paris, where he became part of this secret circle of contacts that we were just talking about. I asked Douglas Batchelor of the What Magic Is This podcast about Agrippa's secret circle, and this is what he had to say. There's, there's this idea that he, um, not idea, it's, it's, it is talked about in a lot of biographies, particularly ones that are in German, about this group of people that would help him find information that he would later use to synthesize his model that would go into three books of occult philosophy. And it sounds like from what we can see, again, I haven't read these letters, but it sounds like they all saw something special in Agrippa and decided that Agrippa would be the one who would have like final cut as to what information would go in there. They saw just how intelligent this, this young man was and some of the people in this group were way older than him, more than a decade older than him. And they still said, like, no, he's the one. This is the one that has to do it. It really solidifies, in my mind, just how special he was. He was a special person. Agrippa had the choice as to who would be included in this circle. And he had the choice as to what information be, what that was given to him that he would use for his, uh, his, his synthesis of what he thought the mad, what magic and the occult was. So... Yeah, it's it's very odd um, that more hasn't been written about this. That was the very first bit of that. That was when he was 24. When did he start this like circle, or or who decided to start it, and who who made him boss? Right. From what we understand, uh, some of these people were in Catalonia, um, and uh, they they had they had a lot of access to a lot of the information from um, the fall of Toledo and whatnot. That that wonderful Arab. Uh, information that was probably also fairly neoplatonic as well like so that information would have to take time to get to agrippa it's really crazy to to think about people sought him out and that's the other thing people sought out his counsel people he did have students um he was a figure and then the last five years of his life from what we understand he just said enough and i don't want to be a figure and the last five years of his life we have nothing but the stories that came after him of his dog Okay, don't worry. You will hear more about Agrippa's dog later in this series. So Agrippa was a prolific letter writer, and he kept an archive of his correspondence. In 1580, about 45 years after Agrippa's death, a collection of his letters was published. Though the contents of these letters have yet to be deeply explored by modern scholarship, Frater Acker has managed to compile a list of probable members of Agrippa's secret circle. I didn't really recognize any of the names on the list, and you probably won't recognize any of the names either, but here's a selection. Please excuse my horrible pronunciation. Germain de Brie, Charles de Boulle, Charles de Foucard, Symphorien Champier, Germain de Ganet, Geoffroy Brulart, Jean Perreault. 
Frater Acker explains that candidates to join the secret group had to be examined and vetted by multiple existing members. These candidates needed to be free men, and they had to show the required scope of mind and intent. Only those who were intelligent, educated, and curious could become part of the secret circle. Finally, the candidate had to be willing to swear to the circle's rules. Only if they met all of these requirements were they allowed to join what Frater Acker calls the Agrippian Circle. This set of requirements, including the oath, reminded me of the initiatory requirements of a popular and well-known secret society, which leads me to a curious aside. Over 300 years after occult philosophy was published, another massive and remarkable tome appeared. This book was nearly as large as occult philosophy, and while probably not as influential, still managed to make a very large impact. Like its predecessor, it is primarily a composition of dozens of other works, what we would call plagiarism today. Also like its predecessor, it appears to contain esoteric and occult secrets of its own. The book in question is Morals and Dogma of the Ancient and Accepted Scottish Rite of Freemasonry by Albert Pike. Here is what Pike had to say about this book as he was compiling it, or he wrote this and referred to himself in the third person. In preparing this work, the Grand Commander, who has been about equally author and compiler, since he has extracted quite half its contents from the works of the best writers and most philosophic or eloquent thinkers. Perhaps it would have been less better and more acceptable if he had extracted more and written less. Still, perhaps half of it is his own, and in incorporating here the thoughts and words of others, he is continually changed and added to the language, often intermingling in the same sentences his own words with theirs. It not being intended for the world at large, he has felt at liberty to make, from all accessible sources, a compendium of the morals and dogma of the right. He claims, therefore, little of the merit of authorship, and has not cared to distinguish his own from that which he has taken from other sources, being quite willing that every portion of the book, in turn, may be regarded as borrowed from some old and better writer. Amazingly, though morals and dogma and occult philosophy cover some of the same subjects, there is pretty much no overlap in the sources used. In 2012, a new edition of Morals and Dogma was released, including the exhaustive research of Arturo de Hoyos, who managed to track down all of the sources that Albert Pike used when compiling and writing this book. It is fascinating. He added nearly 300 pages of footnotes uh, and documented some very, very strange sources. Some of them were already known to people, and some of them were new. Two that really stood out to me, or three that really stood out to me, were Kabbalah Denudata by Christian Nor von Rosenroth, which is a partial Latin translation of the Zohar, and two books 
by famous 19th century magician Eliphas Levy, History of Magic and Transcendental Magic. Now, of course, none of these volumes would have been available to Agrippa at the beginning of the 16th century. It is really interesting to notice that both Albert Pike and Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa make mention of Hermes Trismegistus. If you wish to learn more about this new, trend, this new edition of Morals and Dogma that came out in 2012, I have a feature-length review that was published in the winter 2012 issue of Philalethes. This can be very difficult to track down, but if you really would like to read it, get a hold of me and I will help you get a copy. What were Agrippa's sources? Earlier, we heard Eric Perdue mention that Agrippa used over 200 sources to build a cult philosophy. This begs the question, how much of this book was original, and how much was compiled from these sources? I asked Eric how much of this book is lifted directly from other sources, and he replied, I would guess probably about 95%. Uh, he, has a, he has a couple of anecdotal statements. You know, I, I myself have, wit have witnessed this. I myself have learned to do this, that kind of thing. The instance recipes are original, or at least we can't find the, the source. But for the most part, it's, it's almost all quotes, you know, pieced together William Burroughs style. So what were the sources? I expected them to be a range of medieval grimoires, rare tomes, and crusty occult manuscripts. After all, Agrippa's original manuscript existed by 1510, and the movable-type printing press had only been around for 60-ish years by then. Even more telling, in Agrippa's letter to Trithemius, he mentioned Picatrix the Spaniard. And, as we will discover later, occult philosophy contains plenty of astrological magic, planetary images, and even the mansions of the moon. Surely, I thought, the Picatrix was a vital source. So, of course, I had to ask Eric Perdue about this. What are the sources that Agrippa used for occult philosophy? What surprises had he come across? And is the Picatrix even in there? I think I was more surprised at what I didn't find. So for the most part, his sources were mainstream Renaissance academia. And I expected to find a lot more quotes from grimoires, uh, which there are basically none, at least not classic grimoires that you would think of. And Picatrix is pretty spotty. Uh, my original metaphysical teacher who introduced me to Agrippa also introduced me to the Picatrix, although he hadn't read it because it wasn't translated back then. This is in the mid-90s. And he he believed that the three books of occult philosophy were were equivalent, roughly, to the entirety of the Picatrix. And we now know that's not correct, but... Mainstream Renaissance Academia. How could such mundane books be used to craft a definition of magic and the occult that would shape all of Western esotericism? In his introduction to his translation, Eric discusses some other surprises about Agrippa's sources. For instance, while Agrippa quotes liberally from both the Bible and Plato, it seems as though he's not quoting directly from either of those sources. His Plato quotes are filtered through the works of Pico della Mirandola and a book called De Harmonia Mundi Totius by Francesco Giorgio. It seems that even his Bible quotes come from secondary sources. 
in spite of his certain access to or even over ownership of a Bible. As you read occult philosophy, which I hope you do as you go through these episodes, I believe that it is important to understand a little bit about the sources Agrippa used. Yes, some of them may be pedestrian, but they are almost all very unfamiliar to modern students and readers. Now, I don't think you need to read Agrippa's sources in order to enjoy and learn from occult philosophy. However, it should help you keep Agrippa in context if you understand some of the material he borrowed from. So, in this episode, I will be picking out a few sources in particular that I believe bear special attention. First, we will discuss the works of Johannes Trithemius, the abbot we spent time with last episode. After that, we will discuss the massive tome Natural History by the Roman writer Pliny the Elder. And finally, we shall discuss Johann Reuchlin and his early works on Christian Kabbalah. So what about Johannes Trithemius, the abbot of St. James of Würzburg, who featured so prominently in our introductory episode? Surprisingly, aside from the letters back and forth between Agrippa and Trithemius in the introduction to occult philosophy, the abbot does not appear to have made a huge influence on the contents of the book. One passage, however, comes from Trithemius or is inspired by his work and seems to promise a wonderful magical power. And hence it is possible naturally and far from all manner of superstition, no other spirit coming between, that a man should be able in a very time to signify his mind unto another man, abiding at a very long and unknown distance from him. Although he cannot precisely give an estimate of the time when it is, yet of necessity it must be within 24 hours, and I myself know how to do it, and have often done it. The same also in time past did Abbot Trithemius both know and do. This passage from Agrippa seems to be referring to Trithemius's book on hidden writing and demonology, the so-called Steganographia. This incredible book we will discuss further in a future episode. One other important and interesting piece that Agrippa copied from Trithemius is the alphabet, the magical alphabet of Honorius of Thebes. Now, in Book 3, Chapter 29, Agrippa credits this alphabet to Peter de Abano. However, we know or suspect that it originally came from Trithemius's book on magical alphabets called Polygraphia. This alphabet itself has a fascinating history. It ended up being appropriated later on by Wiccans and pagans and labeled the Witch's Alphabet. You should check it out. It is a fun alphabet and it is used by many different magical orders and occult practices in the modern day. 
The second of Agrippa's sources that we're going to be examining is a lot of fun, and I have to admit that I had so much fun writing this portion of the episode that I may have spent too much time on it, but because it's so entertaining, you're just going to have to listen to the whole thing. Gaius Plinius Secundus, known to us as Pliny the Elder, lived from 23 CE to 79 CE. He is the author of the largest single work to have survived to the present day from the Roman Empire, Naturalis Historia, or Natural History. This thing is massive. It is made up of 36 books, which were probably scrolls, covering 20,000 topics collected from around 2,000 different works. He quoted or plagiarized from between 400 and 500 authors. In fact, we have this quote about Pliny the Elder from uh, one of the existing English translations. The work of Pliny is one of the most precious monuments that have come down to us from ancient times, and affords proof of an astonishing amount of erudition in one who was a warrior and a statesman. The plan proposed by the writer is of immense extent. It is his object to write not merely a natural history in our restricted sense of the term, not an account merely more or less detailed of animals, plants, and minerals, but a work which embraces astronomy, physics, geography, agriculture, commerce, medicine, and the fine arts. And all of these, in addition to natural history properly so-called, while at the same time he continually interweaves with his narration information upon the arts which bear relation to man considered metaphysically, and the history of nations. So much so indeed, that in many respects, this work was the encyclopedia of its age. The Editio Princeps, or first printed edition of natural history, was printed by Johannes of Speyer in 1496 in Venice. Note that this is not many years after the invention of the movable type printing press in Europe, which means natural history was seen as such an important book that it got put into production almost immediately. Now, ironically, Pliny the Elder quotes another Agrippa very frequently in his work, Marcus Vespanius Agrippa, who is a friend of Augustus Caesar. This means that if you were out there and your name is Pliny, it is now your job to write a plagiarized book that quotes frequently from Agrippa, quoting from Pliny, quoting from Agrippa. Now, Pliny the Elder died on August 24th, 79 CE, at Stabiae in Italy. He was killed by a pyroclastic cloud from the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, the same eruption that destroyed Pompeii and Herculaneum. He was unable to escape by sea because volcanic debris prevented his ship from leaving. Natural history was one of the main sources for much of the catalog of plants, animals, and natural phenomena in Book One of Occult Philosophy. 
Passages from Pliny are liberally intermixed in Agrippa's work with the works of other writers such as Albertus Magnus, Marsilio Ficino, Ovid, and Francesco Giorgio. You'll notice as you read through Book One of Occult Philosophy that it is also filled with tons of astrological associations and correspondences. These do not come from Pliny, but instead from other sources that are then intermixed with quotes from natural history, so you will want to pay attention to that. Pliny the Elder's Natural History is a book filled with uh, facts, as long as you put finger quotes around facts when you say it. Some of them are amazing and unbelievable. In fact, in researching this episode and pages, I opened Natural History to random pages to look for things and was continually amused by the litany of hilarious things I would come across. So I'm going to read a few of them to you. First, mares, that is female horses, in Lusitania can become impregnated by turning their faces toward the west wind. The horses produced in such a manner, in such a pregnancy, are among the fastest in the world, but they only live for three years. Second, the Pegasus is most definitely a type of bird. Mice can become pregnant while still in the womb. Turnips are an excellent remedy for poison. And finally, this is one of my most favorite facts and one that I was uh, excited to pass along to a friend of mine who suffers from this issue. If you eat dew-covered cherries early in the morning, pits and all, your bowels will have such explosive explosions that it will cure gout in your feet. Pliny the Elder also wrote about magic. And since natural history was such an important source for occult philosophy, I think it's important for us to look at what Pliny said about magic. We can then be better informed when we talk about Agrippa's definition of magic that he comes up with. Pliny the Elder wasn't a big fan of magic, which we'll get to in a second. In Book 30 of Natural History, Pliny tells us that magic was first written about by somebody named Osantes, who accompanied Xerxes during his invasion of Greece in 480 BCE. According to Osantes, magic is practiced in many ways, including with water, with balls, with the aid of the air and the stars, and with props like lamps, basins, hatchets, and numerous other appliances. Apparently, nobody is quite sure who this Osantes was, and there were multiple people who claimed to be Osantes throughout history. Pliny says that magic claims to grant a foreknowledge of things to come, as well as giving the ability to converse with ghosts and spirits of the dead. However, Pliny thought that magic was bogus, deceitful, and full of crap. He wrote, We may rest fully persuaded, then, that magic is a thing detestable in itself, frivolous and lying as it is. It still bears, however, some shadow of truth upon it, though reflected in reality by the practices of those who study the arts of secret poisoning and not the pursuits of magic. It's remarkable to me 
that Agrippa spent so much time quoting from natural history in a book about magic, knowing full well what Pliny's opinion on magic was. This might be an interesting topic to discuss when we look at Agrippa's definition of magic in our next episode. And now for a quick aside, I think it's important that we discuss a little bit about Pliny the Elder and beer. Pliny lists a plant called lupus salictarius, or wolf of the willow, in a chapter about plants which grow spontaneously. This plant was first wrongly identified with hops by a contemporary of Agrippa, the 16th century Bavarian botanist Leonard Fuchs. Bostock and Riley, who translated Pliny into English in 1855, used Fuchs' identification in their translation, which I am relying on for this episode. This translation is very well known in the world of fancy microbrewed beer. Russian River Brewery in California makes a very famous beer called Pliny the Elder in honor of our Roman friend. It is packed with hops and quite boozy. If you plan on reading natural history, I would suggest that this beer makes an excellent accompaniment. There is a link to this beer in the show notes. And I would also just like to close off this segment of our episode with an important lesson. Please, please, please always check your sources when translating Latin names from Pliny the Elder. While the mystical tradition of Kabbalah begins several centuries before Agrippa among Jewish communities in Spain and southern France, Christian Kabbalah emerged in the late 15th century during the Italian Renaissance. However, it was the German humanist Johann Reuchlin whose work on Kabbalah was the greatest influence on Agrippa. Reuchlin lived from 1455 to 1522. His studies took him to Florence, where he met Pico della Mirandola in 1490. At the time, he had already been studying Hebrew for about 10 years, but it was probably here in Florence that Reuchlin first began studying Kabbalah. After Pico's death at the early age of 31 in 1495, Reuchlin probably felt that the responsibility for studying and promoting Christian Kabbalah had fallen upon him. Also in that year, Reuchlin published his first book on Christian Kabbalah, De Verbo Merifico. Though Christian scholars in that era had a remarkably difficult time finding Jewish teachers willing to teach them Hebrew, eventually Reuchlin was able to hire Jakob Lohns, the private physician for Holy Roman Emperor Frederick III. Reuchlin's studies intensified. By 1508, his proficiency in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek was so great and renowned that he was called a trilingual miracle. Finally, in 1517, Reuchlin published perhaps his most influential book on Christian Kabbalah, De Arte Kabbalistica, or On the Art of the Kabbalah. Along with De Verbo, these two books were the first books written in Latin on Kabbalah by a non-Jew. They both proved to be important sources for Agrippa's occult philosophy. This puts Agrippa near the beginning of an important period of history for the emergence and development of Christian Kabbalah. This is a difficult topic for me to talk about, because elements of this movement seem to be inspired by anti-Semitism. 
or at least a hostility toward the Jewish religion. We will spend some time exploring both Reuchlin's and Agrippa's places in this important movement later in this series of episodes. On the Art of the Kabbalah is presented as a dialogue between three people, Philolaus, a Pythagorean, Moranus, a Christian, and Simon, a Jewish Kabbalist. They meet in Frankfurt at Simon's house and have a long, mystical conversation. The book draws primarily from the contents of just one important document, Codex Halberstam 444. Certain important and enduring Kabbalistic techniques found in Agrippa's occult philosophy were originally inspired by Reuchlin's work, including the Kabbalah of Nine Vaults, or Eichbekar method, and certain types of angel magic. Okay, in this episode, we took a look at Agrippa's sources for three books of occult philosophy, including a look at his mysterious secret society of occult scholars, his friendship with Johannes Trithemius, and the works of Pliny the Elder and Johann Reuchlin. However, we have to remember that Agrippa collected materials from over 200 sources for occult philosophy. We have not even scratched the surface of this massive collection. Unfortunately, we will not have time to explore all of these sources, because in the next episode, we will begin to explore some of the key topics in this book, beginning by answering that vital question, what is magic? This series of episodes about occult philosophy will most likely continue until summer. My Patreon supporters will be receiving each episode a week before the rest of the world, along with bonus materials such as full interviews, a glimpse at works in progress, and the opportunity to suggest further topics for our Agrippa deep dive. If you enjoy these episodes and want to help support their development, you can help out in a number of ways. First, share this podcast with a friend. Let your weird wizard buddies and witch pals know that we have embarked on this journey and that they are welcome and encouraged to join us. And if you want to contribute monetarily, you can go to arnamancy.com slash support and find a number of options. Until next time, my friends, keep reading books, keep being weird, and keep doing magic. This has been another episode of the Arnamancy Podcast. Thank you for joining me. I have been your host, Reverend Eric. You can find Arnamancy online at arnamancy.com, and you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere podcasts are found. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting the Arnamancy Project for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash arnamancy. 